Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking with Colin Wright. Colin is an evolutionary biologist and I just wanted to have him on today talk. Maybe we can talk a bit about COVID-19, but also Colin's gotten in a little bit of hot water every now and then on Twitter, so maybe we can talk about that. <laughs> hey Colin, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. So yeah, I mentioned you're an evolutionary biologist and I mean, I started following some of your stuff or seeing it because people we both follow were tweeting it out um around some of the the trans issues like first like I, most of the stuff i noticed you were talking about insects which was kind of cool <laughs> like okay yeah. like it's uh yeah but then <laughs> that was my day job doing insect <laughs> research yeah so then like i said then you were starting to focus a bit on the trends but i mean if you want to go from like how you started talking about like why you went from talking about insects to like wanting to focus i don't want to say wanting to focus or maybe needing to have to focus on that yeah it's, it's probably an interesting thing for an insect biologist to be doing, I, I can imagine, <laughs> at least from, from the outside. Uh, but it really took place, um, so I guess let me backspace a little bit. So before I went into the sciences, I was pretty active online in like the new atheist community, and I was outspoken against the attacks from science that were coming from the religious right at the time, the young earth creationists and intelligent design people. Uh, then I, when I went to grad school uh, to study animal behavior, I sort of had to self-censor a little bit more as more professors started following me on social media, uh, just because certain things, you don't want to say anything any, anything controversial because people are on your committees and people have a lot of power over you. And so that kind of made me self-censor a little bit. And all through grad school, I kind of self-censored more and more and more. Uh, and during that same time, I started noticing sort of this social justice left sort of springing up, talking about sex differences or the lack thereof. Uh, and it was sort of driving me a little nuts because uh, I've studied animal behavior. We know sex differences are pretty robust and it results from a thing called anisogamy, which is the differences in the sizes of the, the gamete between males and females. Uh, explains a lot of behavioral differences downstream from that. And uh, I really didn't get on to Twitter and start really coming public about this uh, until after I graduated and I started my postdoc at Penn State. And that's when I saw some friends that were actually outright saying that biological sex is a social construct or a, or a, um, a, a spectrum, things like that. And it was just driving me absolutely crazy because I, I saw this as sort of similar to the attacks I saw from the evangelical right you know these religious groups but now they were kind of coming from the left but it was in this guise of social justice uh but still an equally um harsh attack on what i perceive to be as uh, just, you know, biological reality interrupt for a sec because yeah. i keep harping on this book um because i thought it like grouch was or Rauch, sorry was so uh, prescient in it but um uh, kindly inquisitors because yes, he you know he favorite. talks about those two things right he talks about the fundamentalist threat and then what he calls a humanitarian threat and mm -hmm. that's what i equate this social justice to it is the humanitarian threat to yeah. you know yeah. what he called liberal science sorry i didn't mean to cut you off there oh yeah no that's a perfect way to look at it it is definitely the humanitarian threat um then sort of more but it's also sort of a religious nature to it that i really haven't seen before in sort of other uh, incarnations of sort of this this threat from the left mm -hmm. um and so basically I, I, I was sort of really stressed out because I, I wanted to speak about these issues that I thought were important because I saw what it was doing to like you know, female sports and uh, gender ideology is sort of couched uh, in that whole, that whole uh, side of the political aisle and how that was affecting, uh, in my view, uh, how, how children are thinking about themselves and the rise in trans identities and how this might be harmful to children to some degree. So I just saw all these places in society where I saw that sex denialism was actually affecting real people uh, in very harmful ways. 
And so basically I wrote an article uh, called The New Evolution Deniers that I sort of I submitted to Quillette and that sort of is where I ended up gaining sort of my first foothold and some Twitter followers and um, yeah, that sort of sort of haven't looked back since then uh, and I've sort of focused less and less on insect biology and, and focused more on this because I just think it's, it's more important. It's kind of what occupies uh, a lot of my, my thinking nowadays. Yeah, I mean, okay, a lot of that stuff that you said, like I said, again, the, the routes thing, the, the humanitarian threat, but this was not something that I ever thought, you know, okay, the, the creationist stuff, you know, it rears its head every so often and you got to deal with it. I remember the first PC stuff at the, you know, like the late 80s, um, you know, I was going to school at that time, so it was coming around then, and it was it was mainly laughed off as silly for the most part. Um, maybe we shouldn't have. I don't know, but yeah, like it's but it's coming around again, and it's like like the creationist and the the the, the you know the the intelligent design or whatever. That's not coming from the academy. That's coming from the outside. Like this mm-hmm. stuff is coming from you know. Granted, it's not coming from the science departments or even all the humanities or anything like that, but it's coming from a subsection of the humanities, and it's coming from the academy. And the academy is attacking its own expertise. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. So it is coming from sort of those quote-unquote grievance studies areas on campus. But I've just been really amazed at how much influence they have had on everything that surrounds them. All the other departments, you know, less so in like particle physics. But if you go start going down a little bit away from the hardest of hard sciences, uh, mm. it's, it's in all the humanities now. These ideas. Um, are now in, in my field, evolutionary biology and ecology. Uh, I can't tell you how many of my colleagues, you know, are have just recently put their pronouns on their bios and are now just towing that line of sex as a spectrum. Uh, you know, it's a social construct type narratives. And this just blows my mind away because I'm talking to biologists who are, some of them even studying sex differences. And I'll tell them about you know, what biological sex is now has to do with primary sex characteristics. And they'll just say, oh, no, that's not how we think about sex now. You know, it, we, they want to add secondary characteristics like, you know, um, breasts or just the way people's bodies are virilized from testosterone, which, you know, are related to your sex, but are not definitional of sex itself. And you just can't get them off this this wall. They just insist that there's this, this new way of looking at sex, but it's just carving out this new definition for humans that makes no sense because it's the current definitions we have of biological sex are generalizable to all uh, sexually reproducing animals on, on the planet that, you know, that have male and female. Uh, and they're just trying to carve out this little exception for humans. And it's clearly just ideologically motivated. And it's just blowing my mind at how, how many of my, my colleagues and good scientists are now just sort of going along with this narrative. Okay, now you'd mentioned on Twitter and I'm like you also just recently spoke with uh, Andrea um, and you talked about that like you, know, you were looking for work and you're kind of worried about if this is going to affect your work and then I recently also spoke with uh, Bill Weingard and you know his contract wasn't renewed for Marietta and whether you want to call that a firing or whatever like however you want to look at it now okay again I just just because I don't understand it when I went to school you know I, I didn't stay in academia I left I went out to you know private life the whole purpose of it was to push your limits a bit to get you to think differently to expose you to new ideas and and i don't again like i don't want to say you know i don't want to paint it with a broad brush like that but it seems more like the administration is forcing departments to do it and then you're getting people in those departments coming out and you know like i said towing the line now i don't know if this comes from like the you know the colleges of education or where this is coming from like are you there, there was a paper just out recently about light and how 
light is white supremacist or something like that. It was, it was just really ridiculous. Yeah, I remember that. You know, and like, so you are seeing some of it in the hard sciences, and you know, like, like with with what's going on now, and everyone going to everyone like, you know, okay, you can't go to classes. Obviously, you're it's distance learning. If I had a VR company, I I just I'd be putting a lot of money into making virtual classrooms. And then if the academy is like losing faith in itself, and it's having getting people to lose faith in it. And there's people like yourself, people like Bo. I mean, I can list off, you know, the Christakis's, uh, you know, Brett Weinstein. You can li- make a huge list. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, the Academy doesn't want them. Like, if you could come up with a way to make a virtual classroom, and then you, you have a pool of people here who are educators and want to educate, and then from their living room, they could reach, you know, far greater audience than they could from, you know, brick-and-mortar school. Like, you know, like, are, are the Academy, like, kind of, you know, ring their own death bell or something? Or? Yeah, I see the Academy, in my view, is sort of going down this purity spiral, and they're just about to really drive themselves off a cliff, but they don't know this because they're sort of creating this ideological monoculture where they all share the exact same blind spot. And so, and the fact that they all share this blind spot, and they're all sort of like-minded, they tend to hire people that are more like-minded, uh, and so it just creates that that spiral of of you know left wing purity, where a lot of them don't even see the issue of of suppressing viewpoint diversity and people like me or Bo Weingard who are by no means like right wing fundamentalists or anything like that. We're, we consider ourselves. Um, I'm not exactly sure where Bo is. He's more centrist. I consider myself more left leaning than anything. But um, there's just certain topics where if you don't have this certain view, that uh, you're just you know, someone on a hiring committee can just decide that they don't want you to be, uh, you know, in their department based on things. And uh, I think a lot of it I've mentioned before is, is due to just social media in general. Because if you think about how how the hiring process went before uh, before social media, before the internet, really, and that wasn't that long ago, mm-hmm. is you would have someone that just interviews. They give you their CV. They have their publications. You'd have to you you invite them for an interview, but you would. There's certain questions that we all realize are sort of unethical to ask, like your political views, like who'd you vote for, are you going to have kids? But we all realize these aren't things that are important to ask to someone who's going to be a, like a microbiologist, for instance. Like your politics doesn't matter for microbiology. Uh, but now we're in a situation where even though we all agree that those questions are still unethical to ask during an interview, it's just common knowledge that people on hiring committees will just get that information as much as they can just by checking your social media and scouring the internet and doing all these sort of background checks on you to find out who you are, what you believe in. Uh, and then people on the hiring committee, this is almost certainly going to influence their decision to hire somebody if they see someone who's saying things that they don't agree with. Uh, and so you just, again, you, this, it creates this, this spiral of, of purity that just... Uh, makes it so they they can't find their own blind spots, and it makes it so the people who are hiring are just more likely to be selected from that far left kill uh, um, the distribution. And uh, I really see that as being maybe the biggest issue in academia right now. Uh, and things like diversity, equity, inclusion statements is just one way that they can sort of filter people uh, who are coming into the university from all departments now too. Yeah, it's, um, that's it's huge. It's, it's really bad. Well, it's one shibboleth after another, right? Like, if you just yeah. got to keep... And if you don't agree with all of them, that's it. You're ostracized. But, I mean, and, again, like, I don't want to... I appreciate 
you know, higher education. I appreciate all that, but and I don't want to like shit on it or anything. But like, feel free the, to. But the, <laughs> like the, the special, this, like how it got so specialized, right? You know, uh, you're an evolutionary biologist now. Someone who works in biology, but in another field, uh, you know, let's say they do uh, plant evolution, right? Like, 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 you know, like, so you branch off from animal to plant, and you're working. Someone's working specifically on ferns, right? Like you've gotten so specialized. Oh, well, I don't feel right talking outside my field. So when then you had these fields come in, like the gender studies and the queer studies and all that, oh, well, those are those fields and they're the PhDs, they're the specialists. So we can't, you know, we can't tread on their, their turf type of thing. And it just, it was kind of like they built the things themselves that are now, I, I equated it to when I saw the kids at Evergreen and uh, Sarah, Sarah Lawrence or... Uh, can't remember whatever I, you know, I, I equated it to like you know they created their own golem that came back to kill them right like that's what they're doing now with these rules like they because they don't want to talk about race oh well that's the you know the race theorists they handle that we don't mm-hmm. you know, like yes yeah, for, for a long time i sort of that's how i thought about things too i said like you know they're these race theorists or gender studies people you know they're in their own field and i don't know anything about those and i just assume that peer review is doing its job the way it does in a lot of the sciences where you know it's not perfect but it's gonna you know there's gonna be this meandering walk towards more clarity and truth and then just as soon as you just dig into these things a little bit more you do realize how disconnected from reality they are but you still get a lot of the scientists who are just willing to defer to them i don't know exactly why maybe just because they just it's it's sort of a there's sort of a steep learning curve to learning all the jargon that these different fields use, and they much they much rather just think that they're doing everything right, and it's just easier to not rock the boat by pushing back against these things. But I've just implored so many of my colleagues to just listen to what they're saying. And you're a scientist; you can analyze arguments. You we should mm-hmm. be able to make logical connections between things. Like, do these things make sense to you? Are you seeing how they're using this word in two different ways? Are you seeing how the, the consequences these things are having? Like, these aren't things that you need a PhD in gender studies to, to understand. Like, yeah, these but, are, yeah. No, but I mean, it. like when you mentioned jargon there, like they have jargonized a lot of words. And I, I don't even know if they get to, you know, I, I hate doing that, but like, like racism. Racism used to mean something specific. Now, if you look at it through, you know, the race theorists, it means something else. And they came up with that jargon for racism. Now they expect everyone else to follow that. And it's, yeah. you know, like, you know, uh, anti-racism even. Like, if you look at their definition of anti-racism, and again, when you mention the religious thing, it is that, like, there it, it is a perpetual fight. It, it reminds me of um, the, the the Calvinist idea of total depravity. I don't know if you know anything about yeah. And so it's, yeah. it, it's exactly that. It's, it's Yeah, at least in religion... A lot of them, there's some sort of salvation and forgiveness, but in a lot of these social justice ideologies, you know, as soon as you start forgiving, that's when the pain gets even harder because now they've, it's just, uh, apologizing for something is just chum in the water for them. Now they realize that they've, you, you admitted you've done something wrong and now they'll just start swarming. Yeah. Uh, well, so I, mean, that, I mean, that's what I said too. Like, again, I don't want to compare them to ISIS. And no, I'm not saying they're worse than ISIS, but ISIS at least offers you 72 virgins in heaven. Right? Like the, they they don't have a heaven. It's it's perpetually, it's dark and it's bitter and it's just there's there's no advancing it. Um, I just want to go back to the the, the sex thing for a minute because you'd mentioned like laws and stuff. Now Canada just passed a law 
that bans conversion therapy, which on the face of it, it sounds great because, you know, conversion therapy for homosexuals, all that, that, that's all wrong. But if you read into it a little bit more, and if you take Bill C-16, which came out, you know, a couple of years ago, that was the one that Jordan Peterson got famous for, um, a psychologist trying to speak to a kid, and I'm talking about a prepubescent kid, about, you know, transitioning. If they're trying to even give them options, that could be considered conversion therapy. And first of all, I don't think little kids should be transitioning. I don't think they should be getting any kind of medication, certainly not surgery, but like now you can't even get them advice or counseling. Like that, that scares me in there. Like, I don't know if you've looked at that law or heard about it. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, they're using sort of the success of the stigmatization around the word, you know, conversion therapy in the context of homosexual conversion therapy, which was an absolutely terrible thing. Sometimes the electrocuted kids, you know, electroshock therapy to get them to dissociate ideas of you know, homosexual feelings with, uh, with with pleasure, so they'd give them pain when they had you know thoughts that type of thing. Um, but then they've now sort of inserted just as like an addendum, you know, gender identity alongside uh, sexuality, you know, homosexu- uh, homosexuality for um, considerations of of uh, conversion therapy. But these are just wildly different things, and no one wants to you know electroshock. Uh, purported trans kids or anything like that but there's there's types of therapy there's you know affirmation therapy where you do not deny the uh, gender identity of an individual you basically just affirm their identity and use the names that they want to use their pronouns and just accept them as they are and just let them you know see what happens but there's other types of therapy therapy like watchful waiting uh, ones that basically just explore different aspects of you know the reasons why they might be having this dysphoria because it could be that they have confusion about um, their gender non-conforming behavior. It might not necessarily be related to the fact that they have uh, real gender dysphoria of, of the kind that would make you actually trans. And a lot of them also have a lot of comorbidities and abuse histories and things like that. Uh, but if you look at the trajectory of being gay versus being uh, gender dysphoric or being trans, there's they're so different because if you are a child who is, is being put down this pathway to being trans, that pathway consists of puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, irreversible surgeries, um, and this is something that should be avoided if possible. So if, if you're not actually trans, and we know that about 85% of children uh, end up desisting and, be, and growing up to be just natural homosexual adults, and uh, being happy with their bodies and no longer have dysphoria, uh, you can see how, in a way, this is sort of conversion therapy in a new way, where kids that would have otherwise grown up to be homosexual adults are now being affirmed in their gender identity and being turned into to trans adults. And a lot of physicians are also afraid about this whole adding gender identity to conversion therapy because they're sort of in a double bind if they were to affirm the kid's gender identity and you know, make make sure that they if they come out as they say they're trans make sure you you um, affirm that fact that they're trans well they could potentially be guilty of conversion therapy of homosexuals because most of these kids will grow up to be homosexual but if they fail to do that then they could be uh, they could be hit for being uh, for gender for conversion therapy uh, against 
trans individuals by making them turn out to be gay. So it's basically, you know, heads I win, tails you lose. There's there's no good thing for a physician to do because each each tactic, each each way they go to explore someone's identity could be conversion therapy in a, in a different way. Yeah, and also, okay, some of this stuff too, like, you know, up until about the early 2000s, I don't, you know, I don't want to give an exact date because I'm not 100% sure, but it was like, okay, if your little boy wants to play with dolls, let him play with dolls. If your little girl wants to play with trucks, let her play with trucks, right? And they can sort themselves out. So there was no specific, okay, these are boys' toys, these are girls' toys. I mean, I know the toy store still had them, but the general idea was you can let kids play with whatever they want, which I seem to think, okay, that's fine. And there was supposed to be no specific gender bias toys or whatever, right? But now they're specifically doing that. So, like, if a little boy plays with dolls, oh, well, he's showing this gender, so he must be a girl, so he must want to transition. Mm-hmm. And it's like, they, at, at one point, talking about how this is all fluid and it's non-binary, this and that, but then at the same point, they're they're creating these rigid roles that they wanted them to fall under. Now, yeah. I don't see what's wrong with if a little boy wants to play with dolls and he feels like wearing a dress, you know, like, like six years old let them i don't care 10 years old let them right yeah that, that's the kind of boy you are who cares you know yeah as long as you could you know tell them okay you might get teased at school this and that don't worry about it do whatever you got to do like you can support the kid you don't have to give them blockers and tell them you're this or that just oh, you're whatever you know you're jonathan and that's what you're doing and you know go fill your boots so i thought that was always the progressive stance that's the stance i've always held is that we need to not pathologize gender non-conforming behavior or you know quote-unquote like sex atypical behavior if you can have masculine girls and effeminate boys and rather than holding people to these rigid regressive stereotypes that we associate with sex we just need to expand the notion of what it means to be a little boy or a little girl or a man and a, and a woman you know, just because you happen to be more similar in your uh, behaviors and your preferences and your mannerisms to, uh, to to the average female, and you happen to be a male, like, well, you're just an effeminate male. This is nothing to do with being trapped in the wrong body to any degree. But this is sort of the narrative you're now hearing, uh, which is, I think, just extremely it's a, it's a extremely conservative view of gender roles that they're they're latching onto. Uh, and extremely harmful too, because you're, you're telling people they're born in the wrong body that leads to them often trying to alter that body to sort of fit with their uh, the the behaviors that they that they're displaying. Um, it's just so mind-boggling to me that this is now what the quote-unquote progressive movement is championing, because it's this is anything but. It's just bowing down to the regressive conservative stereotypes that I thought we were all trying to reject and just live our lives normally. Um, Okay, but I mean, just sticking with Canada, because I I was starting to work on a series of videos um, about not so much the the gender stuff, because I haven't read enough gender studies and queer studies, but I've read a lot of intersectionality and critical race theory, so I was going to do that and compare some of the laws we're getting in Canada because we've got now a Ministry of Diversity, Inclusion, and Youth, and their two mandates are to create a secretariat on anti-racism, specifically anti-black racism, and then to ensure that 
all policies from all government ministries are uh, have a gender-based plus analysis, so basically intersectionality, and they're to ensure that all policies coming out with that. So, this is, that's a, a government position, not that, not a university. It, no, that is the the Ministry of Youth, Diversity, Inclusion, and Youth. It used to be the Ministry of Multiculturalism, but they changed it. And so Canada's got that. Oh, look, man, the states, the Congress just passed something for you guys in the states like that too. So you can look into that. Um, uh, but uh, so yeah, but I mean, and then I started work on them. I'm really crappy at videos, uh, and then yeah, whatever. Then we all went to lockdown. So I, I, I don't know. I'm gonna try to figure it out now. I think, but mm-hmm. like, so we've got this ministry that's doing that. Uh, Stats Canada gives you the choice of the gender you identify with. So now they're not using sex at birth, they're using the gender you identify with. So mm-hmm. something like coronavirus now, because it's, you know, it's whatever, it's on everyone's mind, it's going on. It, you know, men are affected more than women. It's like almost two to one. You yeah. know, isn't that going to hurt statistics? Like, like right away, that hurts. To, like if Stats Canada is taking it based on gender identity, not sex, like that's going to hurt research. That's going to hurt everything. Yeah, it is mind-boggling how there's just no seemingly adult in the room that's going to just say, like, okay, we need to look at the fact that it's affecting biological sexes differently. It has nothing to do with how an individual identifies. You know, I, I just want to say one thing. Like, this, the stats I'm seeing from Canada, at least from the provinces, they aren't showing gender or whatever. They're actually showing, like, you know, they're, they're giving you as good stats as you can. I'm just, I'm just concerned because, like, Stats Canada, that's their official policy now is just to use gender id but i don't know what they're doing in this specific case yeah yeah i mean it's being used in a lot of different cases you see gender identity being adopted um across the board in just a lot of different sciences which just makes absolutely no sense you know especially specifically for the for coronavirus i think i tweeted out before like if you if you were to find that coronavirus affects uh you know cis men and trans women equally would that you know, is that is the coronavirus sort of a transphobic virus? Is it misgendering trans women for some reason? Um, and I'm sure if you were to, if there were enough trans women that were affected by coronavirus, you'd probably see the same trend that they would they would be dying at equal rates as biological males. And this should be enough just to show people that the factor that we care about here is being male. It has nothing to do with your identity. Mm-hmm. Viruses. Uh, symptoms from diseases, anything besides perhaps maybe some psychological aspects uh, are going to affect you based on the fact that you're male. It doesn't have anything to do with the way you're identifying. I don't know how the reason that people don't seem to be able to or willing to stand up and make that point because they just fear that they're going to get shouted down or or something. It's just insane. I don't know. No one wants to say the emperor's got no clothes on, but I mean... Like I, okay, I am seeing some articles coming out, and some of these are, you know, larger papers and larger publications. You know, oh my God, it's hitting. This wasn't a publication. This was actually a, um, uh, Casio Cortez. Oh my God, it, you know, more and black brown people are doing it. This is because of environmental racism and and this and that. Uh, the Atlantic put something out that even though more men are getting affected by it, it's. You know, it's going to cause more hardship to women. Again, when you need expertise, when you need information that you can trust, people are losing trust in this stuff. People like don't know who to turn to. They don't know where to go. And you know, again, if you like, let's say, 
granted this is not your field of expertise but you know you've studied evolution you know you, you study biology you can read data you can help maybe and even just you know going through the the raw data and stuff like that you know like wouldn't you want as many experts as possible working on this and like i they're shooting themselves in the foot like i, I don't know why they're doing this like the media and the academy right now are just i am lost for words why they're doing that i have no idea yeah yeah the whole was it the what was the word you used that aoc did the uh climate injustice or environmental racism yeah environmental racism yeah i mean these are this is classic critical theory where their only job is to problematize anything at all costs like there's there's no situation where a critical theorist has entered a room and concluded that this room is sufficiently diverse. I have nothing to do here. Like that is just not what they're paid to do. They're they're paid to just problematize any state of affairs, no matter how uh, how diverse it might be in some way. They can always pick something out. There's always going to be some like fly in the ointment that they'll try to insist is there and needs to be remedied. And when once that's remedied, then you know two other things will pop up because you changed one variable and now everything else is problematic. It's sort of uh, I don't know if you've ever read. The Quest for Cosmic Justice by Thomas Sowell, but it's basically what they're doing is they have this version of, of justice that's sort of a, a cosmic, you know, righteous justice uh, where they, they want to stamp out any injustice they see anywhere, but they're, they're sort of blind to the fact that when you try to force reality to conform and, and, and stamp out injustice you see here, well, these things don't exist in a vacuum. You're going to have injustices pop up elsewhere that's the effect of what you're doing here and there's just there's no state of affairs where you can actually you know whack all the moles at the same time uh and to make it so uh so you have the perfect state of affairs that they're so trying to get to we're, no, nothing's going to be perfect but we can't sort of make you know uh good enemy or perfect the enemy of of the good in that sense and that's Sort of what they're they tend to be doing yeah but also I mean, if you read uh d'angelo and you can see this echoed in a few other books that racism is a permanent part of the system like and yeah it's a permanent fight so like if it's 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 not going away then like no matter what you do you will spend your whole life struggling in it i mean they'll like i'm not i'm putting words in her mouth but basically if they say that you know let's say for the last hundred years not a single racist action had taken place in the united states no one had said a bad word like everyone got hired equitably they would still say the system is racist because of its foundation so yeah like racism are is there, a permanent thing are those it's just not over anymore but it's gone underground and it's still yeah it's it's it's, it's, it's still there and it's it's a way that you can never pin pin it down it's always going to be moving the goalpost no matter uh, what there is no it's just a phantom goalpost at this point um and it, they have this sort of self-referential you know, it's a it's sort of a logical loop that they have where you know to deny racism is to as evidence of racism and there's just there's no way you can ever be shown to be innocent of anything oh, yeah, because no, built into the theory is all these these little trap doors that make it so that like all roads lead to you know you're a racist yeah um, like, i mean if you look at like okay the environmental thing like she's talking about redlining and stuff right if white families move out of a neighborhood because you know family like you know families of color or whatever whatever you want to say move in oh that's racism it's white flight if white families move in that's gentrification that's also racism if you say i will you know i don't date uh you know group x well that's racism i only date group x well that's racism because that's now you're fetish fetishizing like you cannot win 
There's no way you can win in this. Yeah, it's they got you either, either way you go. It's, there's just no way to win. <laughs> so now, like, I mean, if you don't mind me asking, like, uh, are you are you now obviously not now, but are like, but is your job hunt going well, or are you still worried about that, or like, do you have any idea what you're going to be doing, or? Yeah, so I actually just recently uh, left academia here. So um, I had been having a lot of conversations with with colleagues, and um, I've talked to some uh, some chairs of biology departments who reached out to me, and they told me that you know they would be very interested in hiring me on as faculty, but that they think their HR department would probably block my hiring at the last second because, you know, I'd be seen as sort of a liability and, um, yeah. And a lot of colleagues saying that, you know, your, your social media should be considered part of your application and you, it's all going to affect your ability to be hired. So I was just sort of looking at this, um, realizing that control over my my career is sort of out of my hands in a way because I don't plan on stop writing op-eds about yeah. uh, you know biological sex and things like that and so um, I, I realized that if, if I were to just double down completely and do as, as good a science as I could possibly do publish you know four papers a year in good journals uh, it's still I don't, I don't know if that would have translated into actual swaying the minds of hiring committees to, to hire me uh, just because I think I'd be probably evaluated based on you know my social media presence and the papers that I've written uh, so I've just decided that I need to sort of take control of my future back because I could just it could be the fact that I'll never get a, a job in academia I mean I applied to maybe over a hundred jobs this this last year and I only had three phone interviews now that could be because I'm a crappy scientist or something but I think uh, given my stage in my career, I have pretty good amount of publications in good journals. I would ex- I would have expected much more, uh, at least interviews than just three out of you know, more, over a hundred. Uh, and I don't know if me publishing more papers is going to really increase that number very much from year to year. So I've decided I'm going to kind of go some other directions and maybe do some science editing and uh, more journalistic. Type um, routes for my career, but uh, right now I'm no longer in academia as of like a few days ago. So it's sort of a, a whole new, a whole new thing. And again, like I, I just don't get it. They like the, the whole tenure track, right? You know, keep your head down, don't say anything, don't do anything that might get you in trouble until your job is secure. Then you don't have to worry about it. But it's like. Okay, granted, like, if someone wants to go in there and say, yeah, well, you know, I'm going to be sterilizing people because of this or whatever, like, you know, like, they're, they're actually doing something horrific, right? Like, mm-hmm. you, know, you don't want them to do that, or I'm sure they're, you know, like, they're, they're, there could be absolutely useless waste of time things as well, but if someone's taking a chance and they're, they're risking it, okay, they're young, their career is young, they can afford to make a mistake because they can come back from it, right? Like, they, they don't have, they don't have a reputation to lose type of thing. Shouldn't, and especially if that forward thinking, even if what they're working on doesn't come up with something, but if something that they hit upon leads to something else, like that, that thinking should be encouraged. And the, I mean, as far as I can tell, the tenure position should be then so you can mentor younger professors who are then doing that kind of out of the box thinking. Like, like I don't mm-hmm. know why the academy doesn't 
like, I mean, you know, they get money off the patents, they get money off the research, they get money off, you know, all of it. Like, I don't know why they don't want to push that. Yeah, no, there's definitely a disincentive for, uh, for sort of bold, uh, outside the box thinking. I think Bo, Bo said it best in his article um, he wrote for Colette about his recent firing, where he said that a lot of academics, they, they all sort of acknowledge that academic freedom is, is a good thing and it's a valuable thing and that you get tenure and then you have academic freedom and, you know, you're, you're hard to fire on those, on those grounds. And, you know, this is always seen as a, a good thing. And when you talk to anybody and, and any scientist, but is it really, how can it be perceived as a good thing when you penalize people from doing it before they get tenure? Like if it's a good thing to have uh, as an academic, why wouldn't it be a good thing to do as a early career scientist? Why are you filtering out those people who would who would actually be the uh, the beneficiaries of having academic freedom that you say is good if you're going to filter them out before they have even a chance to get there so do, do we value these bold independent thinkers who are thinking outside the box and who are you know pushing against dominant narratives or do we not care about these do we, do we not value that and if it's valuable which they seem to say it is then why are we penalizing it in those early stage career, you know, early early career researchers, uh, before they can get tenure, like this, it just doesn't make sense. There's a contradiction going on there uh, about what they claim to value, uh, you know, what they what they say, and then what their actions, what they're, how they're actually doing this and suppressing these outside the box thinkers. But it's also like they're they're inculcating bad habits, right? So you've got like I don't know how long it takes to get tenure, but you know, for X number of years, you're telling them not to think differently just think like this just you know work like this this is how you're supposed to work and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's like oh, well okay go do whatever you want but they've been trained to think and work in a certain way so like, yeah. it's almost like they have, to, they have to relearn everything it's it, it just makes no sense yeah it's, it usually takes around six years before you go up for tenure mm-hmm. and the, the thing about you know Bo's situation and firing people before tenure for their their ideas things like that is other scientists recognize this. Anyone who's studying intelligence is going to look at what happened to Bo, and it's just going to make them either leave the field completely or make them just put their heads down and and not want to be targeted, um, not want to make those you know investigate those certain topics because they saw what happened you know to this individual who did so, and so it just has this chilling effect on on all the scientists who uh, might want to start studying something or add a intelligence aspect to their research and they're now they're just not going to even go there uh or the the ones who are going to go there are the ones that already have the orthodox views that people are going to be okay with like the environmental uh people who think that you know all all differences in iq is purely environmental there's nothing to say about genetics here or at least group differences or anything and so you you get a biased narrative coming out of the academy of only one side of the debate is going to be uh, going to be get, getting jobs or feels comfortable speaking out a, about this certain issue because all the individuals who might disagree have just been selected out or self-selected out in some cases too. Okay. Uh, so you, you get this biased um, narrative coming out. Yeah, on that topic, because I, I talked to Bo about this because I mean it was one of the things that I think you know he got fired because of. <laughs> um, so the whole IQ thing, right? Like, frankly, you know. 
I heard about the bell curve when it first came out because I was in university then, but I didn't read it. I didn't, you know, like, I, oh, this book came out about IQ called The Bell Curve, and that, that's all I knew about it. I didn't know, I learned more about it recently when, you know, he was on Sam Harris and he was at Mid Middlebury there and all that. So, yeah. And I'm like, all right, so I don't think it's particularly, like, I, I, yeah, I'm not a scientist or anything. I've always liked physics. If I was going to read it, that, that's been my thing, was reading physics. No. I'm like, all right, fine. Somebody's done this work on it. But if you ban people from studying it, the people who are going to be studying it are the bad actors. Like, you know, those guys on YouTube now, the race realists or whatever, we can list off their names. I just don't really even want to bother, but, you know. But So if you actually stop, you know, legitimate good scientists from studying this and actually putting out decent information, you're leaving yourself open for disinformation. You're leaving yourself open for bad actors to put stuff out. And it's going to be twice as hard to come back and try to fix things. Like, I, I just don't, like, once the genie's out of the bottle, what's the, like, what's the point of trying to, like, stuff it back in? Like, it just, you know. Yeah. It's really a shame because, in my opinion, like, there are people out there who are studying IQ differences and intelligence and all, all these things. And they're, they're not very nuanced. And they have, uh, you know, maybe some of them might have sort of an agenda behind them that you kind of, you know, it's not the best. I'm thinking of like the Stefan Molyneux out there yeah. who I think are just pretty, pretty terrible people uh, using sort of the science, this, this sort of science to bolster their um, very actually racist views. But then you get people like Bo, but I think Bo is probably maybe the most nuanced, careful thinker on that. And if someone like Bo is going to get, you know, going to get, get sacked for, for his, his measured, nuanced views and not an ounce of bigotry in there, uh, then there's just no one no one can touch this field then because I thought Bo was the most articulate person I've ever read on that subject and there's no place for him there. Yeah, I mean, it's... I, I, you know, it just, I just don't get it because there is there merit in discussing it? Should it have been discussed in the first place? Whatever, but it's out there. Talk about it, but it's... Like, again, when you put out these things, like, okay, there's, uh, you know, this point difference between group X and group Y, but then, you know, if you actually look at, and if you take the time to look at it, and I understand not enough people take statistics and stuff, but if you look at that differentiation, there's a there's a bigger variation within each individual group than there are between the two groups, right? Like, you know, so when you give that, just that, state that one little fact out, right? And yeah. no one, no, and like people don't know enough to, enough to look at the study or don't, you know, go into it or don't understand statistics enough to look at that variation. Like, again, like I agree with you with, with, with Bo, you know, about Bo, like he was one of the most reasonable people I've seen talking about this stuff, but it just, I don't know if you could, if we need to start teaching people math more often or, you know, before yeah. you, before you do that, like have a little two minute segment on statistics before you start talking about these statistics. I, I don't know. Like it's. Yeah, and everyone seems to be confusing group level claims with individual level claims, where they you you can make a claim about average differences between groups, but then you can't make those you can't use that population level claim to then make a claim about an individual saying, oh, you're an individual from that group, therefore you must be less or more intelligent or you know whatever the metric may be. So you can't use you know the higher level statistic to apply to an individual uh, because yeah it's, it's a distribution people just need to look at 
you know, the, the overlapping bell curves, I guess, to point out that you know, there's there's a lot of variation, and just because you're from this group doesn't mean you can't be far on the tail tail end of the spectrum over here uh, and be more or less whatever the factor is than most or all individuals over here. So it's yeah, it's it's all part of that purity spiral thing I was talking about too. This is why you get people like Bo now who just are not able to to have a career in science because there just aren't any people who are who are of of the mindset where they're they're willing to have this. They all they all have the same blind spot and so uh, they they can't even see what they're doing is wrong. They just they approach people like Bo with the the most sus- the highest level of suspicion you could imagine and any word they're going to dissect is trying to find evidence of him being a bigot or a racist you know they're they're looking for evidence that the mask is slipping at any given moment even where you know I've read Bo enough and he's, he's not wearing a mask he's is who he is uh, but it's yeah there, there's this complete uncharitable uh, approach to engaging with ideas that we see now look I don't want to take up a- too much of your time not that you know we're i think we're all having a little bit of abundance of it but uh if you got anything else you want to talk about or uh if you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you anything you want to discuss go ahead i think we covered a lot of good stuff um working on a few different uh writing projects right now that should be coming out and now that i have uh i'm in quarantine at my parents house right now so i'll be in quarantine for about 12 more days uh, just sort of distancing since I, I just drove across the country and they're doing sort of a lockdown. So because I'm an, an outsider coming in now, I have to be quarantined for you know two weeks. Uh, but now I have a lot of time to finish a lot of essays. I'm, I'm writing something with Bo uh, on the univariate fallacy that should be coming out pretty soon. I'm not sure if you're uh, aware of the univariate fallacy uh, thread that I've done before. It's basically just a claim that, you, that is made by a bunch of sort of the social justice types that they try to destroy um, binary systems like biological sex or sex differences between personalities uh, between the sexes by saying something like, um, you know, you can't narrow down the difference between males and female personalities or their neuroanatomy. You can't, you can't narrow it down to a single factor and therefore it's a social construct that there are these differences exist at all. Um, so this is a it's called the univariate fallacy where just because you can't narrow it down to a single factor doesn't mean we can't make uh, we can't look at several factors together um, sort of these cluster concepts and, and show how populations are uh, are able to be separated um, so it's a big I had a long thread on that before um, and this is being turned into an article now we're gonna we're gonna submit it to Quillette but we'll see where where it eventually goes um, so that's something that's uh, in the in the in the wings, it's, it's being worked on, um, and there's some other articles too, um, on some of the stuff we've also chatted about, like the purity spiral and academia and stuff. So, I expect some of that to come out now that I have about two weeks of time to just dedicate to writing. So, should be fun. Well, cool. Well, thank you very much for uh, talking, and thanks everyone for listening.